wireless headphones. That'll be $200. I'll use my Capital One Quicksilver card. Now that's a hit. You used the Capital One Quicksilver card, which makes you the hero of every purchase. With Quicksilver, you earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere. I wanted running music, but unlimited 1.5% cash back is pretty heroic. Good instincts. Every hero needs a theme song. The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Welcome back to the Great Unsolved Podcast. I am your host, Alexis, and we are starting a little series, I believe, maybe just two episodes on the JonBenet Ramsey case. I was going to cover this in December since it happened in December, but I took a few weeks off to go visit family and celebrate the holidays, so we are starting it now. Before we jump into the case, I have to go through the normal things. So follow us at Great Unsolved Pod on Instagram, at Great Unsolved on Twitter. You can search Great Unsolved on Facebook and find our Facebook group and our Facebook page, both of which I post quite a bit on. I also kind of revamped the Patreon. Um, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know the exact details. But I believe I made all the tiers pretty similar. But if you go up the tiers, meaning pay more, you get different like merch options. It is all laid out on Patreon. The link is below, as is all the links for the social medias. So go check those out if you would like to. I will mention one more time that my husband and I are starting a podcast on oddities, conspiracies, cryptids, unexplained things. And that podcast is called Infinite Intrigue. That one should be out within the next week. We were figuring out the setup, but we have a few episodes recorded. So keep an eye out for that. I will also post on the Great Unsolved social media when that does come out. So let's get into the infamous case of JonBenet Ramsey. So first, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the DNA evidence in the JonBenet Ramsey case. Personally, I don't think we should regard the DNA evidence in this case. It has never matched to any suspects or anyone in the criminal DNA database. So it could be a mix of a few different DNAs and there might never be a match. Also, 90 to 94% of jurors find DNA evidence very reliable. And I know myself and many other true crime people tend to lean towards DNA evidence as the best evidence. But it's really not. There is rarely, if ever, a 100% match. And if it's less than 100%, 
it throws everything into question because you could be a 99% match, but if that 1% doesn't match, that could mean it's not your DNA at all. The former police chief in Boulder, Colorado, who worked on the JonBenet Ramsey case, says, quote, exonerating anyone based on a small piece of evidence that has not been proven to even be connected to the crime is absurd, in my opinion. You must look at any case in the totality of all the evidence, circumstances, statements, etc., in coming to conclusions, end quote. So we are going to look at suspects, quote-unquote, that have been found to not match the DNA. And because they haven't matched the DNA, a lot of people think they are cleared and the police has even cleared some of them. But in my opinion, we can't be sure. So we are going to look at these so-called cleared suspects. I did write down a little question when I was reading about what Police Chief Beckner said. And it was, does he believe someone who was exonerated or cleared in the case due to the DNA, is guilty. This kind of comes to mind because he's saying we shouldn't really even look at the DNA because it might not even be connected to the case, which makes me think maybe somebody who has been cleared because of the DNA is his prime suspect, at least personally. All right, I'm done with my little DNA evidence, no DNA evidence talk. So let's get into the timeline. We are in Boulder, Colorado in 1996. On December 23rd, the Ramseys hosted a party of about 30 people at their home. This is before the murder, obviously, but many people believe that somebody from the party could have stayed in the home and hidden until the murder or gave themselves access to the home at a later date. Maybe they went somewhere, unlocked a window so they could get in a few days later, something like that. A lot of people think the people who were in the home just days before the murder are somewhat suspicious because they had access to the home, they were close enough to the Ramses to be invited to the Christmas party, so they knew John Monet. It wouldn't have been weird for John Monet to see them in the house, stuff like that. So, it was worth mentioning. On December 25th, Christmas of 1996, the Ramses went to a Christmas party. Upon arriving home at around 10 p.m., John Monet is asleep, so John carries her inside and puts her to bed. This is a point of contention later in the case because the stories change and speculation changes things. But the original story was that John Bonet was asleep when they got home. John carried her upstairs and put her to bed. It is stated that the other three, her brother and her parents, went to bed very quickly as well. Which makes sense. It's 10 p.m. The kids are little. It had been a long holiday. And they were supposed to fly to Atlanta the next day or the day after, I believe. They were originally from Atlanta, so they may have been going back to visit family or just go back to the area, but they were supposed to fly out not long after, so made sense to go to sleep early. On December 26th at 12 a.m., we don't find this out until later, 
but a neighbor reports that a light was on in the Ramsey kitchen, which does not line up with their story of going to bed soon after arriving home at 10 p.m., so it's worth mentioning. At 2 a.m., another neighbor reports hearing screams from the Ramsey home and metal on concrete, but she later recants this statement. However, it could have been that night. We don't know, so we're leaving it in there. At 5.30 a.m., Patsy supposedly finds the infamous ransom note. The ransom note says, quote, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence a earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory, SBTC. End quote. At 5.45 that morning, about 15 minutes after Patsy supposedly finds a ransom note, she calls her friends. It is raining like crazy outside, but since I already started recording, I am going to try and finish recording this. Hopefully you cannot hear the rain too much. At 5.52 a.m., Patsy placed her infamous 911 call, saying that she found a ransom note on the stairs when she woke up and her daughter had been kidnapped.
So the call recording isn't great. It was 1996, but a lot of people online have enhanced it a little bit, at least the voices that are supposedly heard at the end. There is a lot of speculation about what is said at the end. I didn't play the end because you can barely hear anything, but a lot of people think that Burke is up during this time, which is Jaminet's brother, or they're talking about what happened to JonBenet, or a lot of people say it just points towards the family being involved with JonBenet's murder. But I want to play the 911 call so you can get an idea of how the family was acting at least very early that morning, but we will get into more of the family a little bit later. By 6 a.m., the first police officers arrive on scene, and from 6 a.m. till 8 a.m., more police arrives on the scene as well. It's said that officers searched the home, but we'll find out later they obviously did not search it that well. And there was a lot of botched investigation work in this case. We'll get into that more later as well. It's just insane that all this stuff happened in one case. At 8.10 a.m., the detective who would reside over this case arrives. Her name was Linda Arndt. The scene here, though, is never fully secured. Apparently, they secured Jaminet's bedroom, but I'm kind of unsure when that happened. It could have happened when the detective arrived, which is already long after the 911 call was placed, and so many people could have been in there. Plus, that was not the scene of the crime. They should have secured the whole house and at least not let anyone that wasn't from the family in. But the Ramseys had friends and family coming in and out all day. So pretty much the entire home was contaminated if there had been any evidence. Around 10.30 a.m., John is said to be missing. Supposedly he went to go get the mail, but it's found out that the family's mail was actually delivered that day. So no one's 100% sure where John was at 10.30. Around 1 p.m. is when things really take a turn for the worse. Apparently, the tension in the home causes Detective Arndt to ask John and his friend Fleet White, which is the person's house the family had been at the night before for the Christmas party, to search the house, even though police supposedly already searched the house. So the two, for some reason, start the search in the basement And just five minutes into the search, John finds JonBenet's body. Fairly suspicious. It seems like he knew what room to go to, but that's just speculation. There's no evidence that I'm aware of saying he knew what room to go to. But he finds her body in a storage room that Patsy called the wine room, but it actually held Christmas decor. And JonBenet was covered in a blanket. The Ramsey's housekeeper would later say that even after working for the Ramsey family for quite a long time, 
She didn't know that the room was there until Patsy specifically asked her to get something out of there. The home was said to be pretty confusing, and the housekeeper believes that a murderer who had not previously been in the home would have found that room specifically. But anyway, John finds his daughter, and at first he says he was relieved to find his daughter until he realized the state that she was in. She had a garrote around her neck, her mouth and hands were secured with duct tape, so he grabbed her. But supposedly, instead of like cradling her like you would think a parent who was worried about their child would do, he held her by the waist and at an arm length away from him. Detective Linda Arndt is the one who provides this information, and she says she found it very odd. Once he grabs her, he brings Jamine's body into the living room where he ended up taking the tape off her mouth. Now, some sources say he took off the tape when they were in the basement. Some say after he brought her upstairs. Either way, John took the tape off of Jamine's mouth. And then, to contaminate the body further, police moved her body onto the couch and covered it with another blanket. So... Everything's contaminated at this point, which is one big reason why I don't think we should look at the DNA in this case, because it, there's nothing that was clean or orderly about this case or the crime scene. 1.30 p.m., a little after Jamine's body was found, the home is finally secured. Although all the evidence is already contaminated, the whole house is contaminated, So at this point, does it really even matter? Right after that, at 1.40 p.m., John calls his pilot to get a plane ready to fly to Atlanta, where they were from. And at this point, law enforcement had told them not to leave town. So it's very odd that the first thing you do after you find your daughter's dead body is arrange to fly out of the state you're in. Mostly because, like, you would want to get the burial things together. You would want to be helpful in the investigation. But also, if the police tell you not to leave town, you probably shouldn't leave town. At 2.30 p.m. that same day, Burke's interview takes place, and police find out that he slept the entire night. However, a lot of people have analyzed Burke's initial interview and believe he is hiding something, believe he knows something. He was a child. I don't think we'll ever know if he knew something at that point or after, but the interview didn't really give us much. However, at this point, John hired an attorney, which I believe, I go back and forth on this. I believe it's a little suspicious if you think for sure your daughter was supposed to be kidnapped and was killed instead, and that somebody else did this. But also, I understand protecting yourself and your family by getting a lawyer and not talking to the police. However, it does make you look guilty, especially in your daughter's case. At 10.45 p.m. that night, over 12 hours after the initial ransom note and almost... 10 hours since the body was found, the coroners finally remove Jamine's body. Not that it matters at this point. Like I said before, everything's already contaminated. So any evidence they find probably wouldn't hold up in court very well. 
On December 28th, two days later, John, Patsy, and Burke all went to the police department to give their hair, blood, and handwriting samples. And the next day, on December 29th, the family does fly to Atlanta. December 31st, Jamine's funeral is held in Marietta, Georgia, and 200 of their friends and family attend. Then we move into 1997. On January 1st, Patsy and John gave an interview, but not to the police. They did not want to be interviewed by the police, but they did go to the media. Patsy says, quote, there is a killer on the loose, end quote. This is while police were trying to assure Boulder residents that there was not a killer on the loose and that nobody else was in danger. So they're going against the police department. They're not cooperating with the police department, and they're making the police department's job more difficult than it already has been. When this interview comes out, the Boulder Police Department was shocked that the parents did this because they said they were, quote, too emotional to be interviewed at that time, at least by police. On January 3rd, a huge development comes in the case when police reveal that the ransom note that Patsy supposedly found was written inside the home. They also state that they believe the ransom note was written after the murder, which someone who's kidnapping a child for ransom would not do because they would assume that the family would find the body before paying the ransom. So at this point, the ransom note looks like an attempted cover-up that really wasn't that thought out. So that is the end of our basic timeline. Um, I have a few things I wrote down that I found when I was researching the case overall, and I'm just going to call these police beliefs. So police do believe the crime scene was staged. And I didn't write down the specific evidence they have for this, but I know it was something about the basement and her being strangled because she already had the head wound that probably to the layperson would look like she was already dead. So they believe it was somewhat staged. And then obviously the ransom note at this point looks like it had been staged as well. Beckner, the former Boulder police chief, believes that there is evidence of John Bonet previously being abused. Now, a lot of people who look at this case believe John Bonet was being abused because she was in beauty pageants, which at this point in time is ridiculous. Who cares? Yes, it is a place where many predators can go. But, you know, if your kid likes it, if you're making sure your kid's safe, that's not abuse, okay? It's like participating in a sport. So that's not what I'm talking about here. Beckner hinted to more so sexual abuse, and a lot of people have thought that maybe maybe John Ramsey had been sexually abusing John Bonet, and this is why she was killed. There's really no public evidence to support this. Beckner believes there is evidence of this. If there is, the public does not know about it. And no one has said if it was somebody in the family or not that was suspected to do this abuse to JonBenet. So not pointing to John for any of this, it was just something worth mentioning here. 
Clement, an FBI profiler, said, quote, in my opinion, the Ramsey family did not want law enforcement to solve this case, end quote. And that is a huge thing. FBI profilers aren't always right, but generally someone with this high of standing who has worked on so many big cases saying something like this says a lot because generally they think about what they're going to say. They don't just blurt things out and point fingers at people. So if he's saying he thinks the family did not want law enforcement to solve this case, that points towards the family even more. We are now going to get into the autopsy injuries, cause of death, that kind of thing. And then the next episode will be some odd evidence, suspects, notable pieces within the case, things like that. Because that's the only way I really know how to split this up. The time of death was said to be between 10 p.m. on December 25th of 1996 and 6 a.m., December 26th of 1996. They believe it's likely closer to 12 a.m., so midnight, December 25th, into December 26th. And that would make the most sense as if we were approaching 6 a.m., that would be when Patsy was up, and it just doesn't seem that likely. So the cause of death was said to be, quote, asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma, end quote. Basically, it was a mix of head trauma and being strangled. There was, so we're going to talk about the head injury now. There was no observable scalp trauma externally. There was an extensive area of scalp hemorrhage internally, though. It was said to be about 7 by 4 inches, which is fairly big. And it is said to be linear to the skull fracture. And the skull fracture was a rectangular shape, about 1 and 3 fourths inches by 1 half inch. So... We had the skull fracture, and then kind of around it next to it was the scalp hemorrhage internally, not externally. Obviously, the autopsy revealed a severe blow to her head right before or during her murder. Jamine was alive when this blow to her head happened. It was said to be caused by high force trauma, which would not be a fall. It High force trauma is not categorized as a fall. It is categorized as being hit with something, which kind of points towards a weapon being in use. The Boulder assistant DA said that John Binet was, quote, hit with enough force to bring down a 350-pound lineman, end quote. So for a six-year-old, that is a ton of force, which is why the cause of death is not just strangulation, but also the head trauma. I believe the head trauma would have killed JonBenet eventually if the strangulation had not happened. So now let's look at the neck injury. There was a loose cord tied around her wrists, and it was seemingly the same cord that was used for the garage. Garrett. I can never pronounce that word. It was about one-fourth in width. And then on the end, there was a 4.5-inch 
wooden stick that was said to be a broken piece of one of Patsy's paintbrushes, which her painting stuff was found next to the crime scene. And it was irregularly broken. And the end that had been broken off was never actually found. It is said that there was blonde hair stuck in both the cord and the paintbrush, the broken paintbrush. Apparently, pretty complicated knots were used to tie this cord and the paintbrush. But the cord was never sourced to the Ramsey home, so we aren't 100% sure where it came from. That doesn't mean it couldn't have come from the Ramsey home, it just means they didn't find any more within the Ramsey home. This cord that was around her neck was buried pretty deep in her neck skin from being pulled so tightly, which you can kind of assume if she was strangled, it would be that tight. The last thing about the autopsy injury's cause of death is that the head trauma is said to have occurred 45 minutes to two hours before the strangulation, but it did not kill her, which kind of throws all the suspects into play if it was somebody who really did want ransom and who really did break into the house that means they were there for over 45 minutes if we go on the low end head trauma occurred 45 minutes later she was strangled but then they still had to write the note and there was a practice note written before so this is a long time for a criminal to be in the house, they could have possibly gotten caught so many times. So most criminals will not risk this, which kind of points towards it being either someone the Ramses knew or the Ramses themselves. So that was the timeline and the cause of death and such for the JonBenet Ramsey case. Next week, we are going to get into the suspects, which kind of just talk about the family, and then the main pieces of evidence, including the basement window, the ransom note again, the bowl of pineapple and milk, supposedly, and the infamous flashlight. So we will get into those next week. Thank you for going over this part of the case with me. Once again, if you don't follow us, follow us at Great Unsolved Pod on Instagram, at Great Unsolved on Twitter. You can search Great Unsolved on Facebook to find our Facebook group and our Facebook page. All of those links plus the Patreon link will be in the description below. I will see you next week. Have a very safe week. Lowe's. Shop deals on top outdoor power equipment during Spring Fest. Save now on the latest in cordless outdoor power with Ego. Only at Lowe's. For a limited time only, get $50 off Ego's Touch Drive 21-inch self-propelled lawnmower. And save $20 on select Ego 15 and 16-inch string trimmers. Head to your local Lowe's or visit Lowe's.com and save on all things spring now. Bound through 412. Selection varies by location while supplies last.